We see each other through the vehicle of culture. Otherwise, we're invisible to each other and invisible to ourselves. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Best known for her Tony Award-winning Broadway musical hit Fun Home, an adaptation of Alison Bechtel's celebrated graphic novel, Lisa Crone is a singularly talented playwright and performer whose body of work carries deep meaning for our time. Her storytelling inhabits the vast gray area between fact and fiction, memory and invention, the humorous and the horrific. Lisa honed her voice as a writer and performer of autobiographical material at New York City's WOW Cafe, which began as an international women's theater festival in 1980. It was also the birthplace of the award-winning theater collective The Five Lesbian Brothers, of which Lisa was a founding member. Her work during those formative years eventually led to her breakthrough one-woman show, 101 Humiliating Stories. Lisa's writing evolved with even greater complexity to focus on her parents in her next two plays, 2.5 Mile Ride, concerning her father, and Well, a piece about her mother. She then brought her gifted artistry to writing both book and lyrics for Fun Home. That work paid off in the form of a Broadway smash that earned her two Tony Awards and a Pulitzer Prize nomination. During our conversation, we explored the contours of her career in the theater, the delicate process of dramatizing autobiographical material, and her passion for the collective power of live performance. I'd like to begin just to explore a little bit about your background back in Michigan. And I'm particularly interested in how you think about or remember yourself as a kid, uh, what the creative spirit was of you as a as a child uh-huh. because it's always interesting with people I talk to to see how that finds its way through to what they're doing currently too yeah that's interesting it's an interesting way to frame it how I what did you say how I how I remember myself? How you remember it. Remember, yeah, yeah, how you remember yourself, yeah. I was incredibly shy with people I didn't know. Um, I was incredibly fearful of a lot of things about the outside world. I was terrified my parents were going to die. I was scared to step on an escalator. I was scared to be alone in an elevator. I was mm. sure the house was going to burn down. I was scared of heights. Yeah, I was generally an incredibly fearful child. And I think I was really fortunate to have two parents who were extremely uh, present and solid. (laughs) And that sort of allowed me to really work that out over time. And we never went to the theater. We didn't really listen to music. We watched a lot of TV. Everybody in my family could tell a funny story. And that was extremely highly valued. There was a lot of uh, pleasure in that. And, you know, we were we were logical people. We definitely were not a family of artists. But my mother really was dazzled by, I mean, not high art. That would have been considered pretentious. But creativity. People who could make things. People who um, had skills or mastery of something. That was just dazzling. 
particularly to my mother. And um, in Lansing, every year there was something called the Youth Talent Competition, and it was at the Civic Center. And we would go and see all the things that people, that the young people had made. And I just remember walking around with my mother and her just saying Mm. over and over again, can you believe it? Can you believe that somebody made that? You know, she just thought that was the greatest thing. And the other thing, which I, you know, talk about in, in well, is that you wouldn't try to be different for the purpose of being different. You know, that would be anathema to a Midwesterner. But on the other hand, my mother could not figure out why anybody thought conformity for its own sake was a good thing. And uh, she said many times, you know, well, true mystification, why would you want to be like everybody else? Mm. And so I think finding an authentic means of expression, that was definitely communicated to me as a very, very high value. And do you remember, you know, internally your own sense of your creative energy or the need to express, I mean, despite the shyness and the fears or maybe a way to work through the shyness and the fears, do you remember that about yourself? Well, I was interested in being funny. Uh, I was interested in knowing how to tell a funny story. I certainly, you know, did that at home. And also in my synagogue, we put on these, these Purim plays, which, you know, I sort of wrangled. One was called Gunfight at the OK Kibbutz and another one was called Broadway (laughs) Melodies of 400 BCE. And I really loved, I I loved it. And I continue to love like a sticky joke, you know. Right. How old would you have been then when you were doing the Purim plays? Uh, High school. High school. High school. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sort of other striking moments, I would say my grandmother gave me a, you know, an AM clock radio (laughs) one year when I was probably like in fifth or sixth grade. And then I started to listen to the radio, which we didn't do in my family. And I remember getting to know popular songs and having kind of a love-hate relationship with them. Hotel California and Forever in Blue Jeans really stand out as (laughs) just hearing them and being attracted because I recognize them and then just feeling like it was nails on a chalkboard. But I have an incredibly strong memory of sitting on my bed and the radio being on and listening to Joni Mitchell's Free Man in Paris was a hit then. And hearing the lyric, she danced with the lady with a hole in her stocking and just being like like a thunderbolt, like what kind of a lyric is that? Mm. What is that? Mm. What is that? Why would somebody write that detail? And I feel like there's something about that moment that feels like one of the first moments that I heard something that actually had art in it and was like, why, why, what is that? That's not the, that's not the regular thing. That's something else going on there. And what is it? And why is it? And just like grab it, feeling like I was grabbing a thread of something that I couldn't understand, but that I was incredibly compelled by. Right. And directing the focus on that one detail, not unlike maybe Ring of Keys too, which is an interesting comparison to that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. What is it about that reflection of that quotidian detail that right. gets... Right, and a way into it, right? That gets that, that illuminates something that has a... That, that when you put it inside a form, you give it a kind of an incandescence. What are, you know, what is that? How does it operate? What are you doing? And do you think that kind of thing or that kind of experience of listening to that Joni Mitchell lyric was, is that the beginnings of you as a writer or thinking about writing? I get the performing side, but... I think probably yes, but I mean, I was into my late 20s, I think, or certainly mid-20s before it ever occurred to me that I would write. I mean, it would have been just as likely that I'd be a brain surgeon. Right, right. So that just came much later. Yeah. Well, I'm not a natural writer. 
even when I was writing some, I think I didn't call myself a writer until it occurred to me that the just terrible, miserable feeling I had when I was writing was not something that was ever going to go away, that that was actually how it feels to write. Right. And it took me a really long time to figure that out. So then moving forward to um, your college years and to the, the time at the Wild Cafe, and my question I ask really here is, in a way, as an arts educator, because you describe the transition from college theater to the New York theater world as a, almost as a way of breaking the rules mm -hmm. and finding a kind of freedom beyond the rules. And I'm wondering if that was, if that's Lisa's own personal journey, or if there's something about our education and the way we educate people that maybe is too confining or that was set up in a way that didn't allow you to have the kind of freedom that you ultimately discovered at the Wow Cafe and the establishment of the mm -hmm. five lesbian brothers. I just kind of think that like, you know, certain kinds of education and therapy and religion, they, they consist of structures that are conduits. They're, ch they're channels for the inchoate experience of life and the sort of onward, ever-changing rush of human experience. And they're conduits that allow something to be visible and maybe give us a sense of meaning. If what you take from that is that the form itself is the thing, and you just end up with a bunch of rules, and you say the point of this thing, the point of playwriting, the point of religion, the point of you know whatever, is to replicate these structures and rules rather than to use them as a container or as a conduit for something to move through, then you're really missing the point. <laughs> I mean, you know, I went to a small Midwestern college and there was a lot about it that was amazing. And it got me where I wanted to a place actually, I, I ultimately that I never could have imagined, but there were definitely a lot of rules. You know, what I was taught is, you know, this is the way things are done. This is what theater is. This is what it isn't. The focus was on those kind of things. I mean, also, well, this isn't entirely true. You know, one of the first plays we did was Marsha Norman's Getting Out. Mm. And, um, you know, there was some interesting experimental theater that happened sort of around. And I didn't have any means to understand that or have any relationship to it, really. And this would have been in the uh, late 70s, early 80s? Yeah. But I was at that point, I was very happy to, uh, you know, focus on those rules, I would say. And one of the things that happened to me when I came to, I mean, I saw the Split Bridges Company perform. And I was just like, it had, it had virtually nothing to do with what I had understood of theater to that point. Mm -hmm. And it was electrifying. And so even though I was terrified of everything, I just went toward it. I just couldn't help it. I just needed to know. I needed to be near the source of that thing. And then, you know, I ended up at WOW, where there was a, a spectrum of people, some of whom knew a lot about theater and were working professionally, you know, outside of the mainstream, but, you know, making their living doing it, had been doing it for a long time. And then there were people who were, you know, it was a social club, you know, but the thing about it was that it was alive in a way that I had never experienced. It was also what Wendell Pierce describes as, uh, you know, he talks about it um, in some interviews I've read about Treme, what is a living culture as opposed to a kind of denatured commercialized version of that culture where you pay a lot of money to sit and have 
something that is supposedly a cultural experience delivered to you, as opposed to a living culture, which is something that is in a feedback loop with your lived experience all the time. It's how you celebrate milestones. It's how you grieve losses. It's how you spend your weekend nights. You know, it's, it's, it's what you do. And that's what WOW was. And for me, it had this incredible benefit, which was an experience for many years of making work daily for no other reason than to see what we could put on stage, to, to delight ourselves. And, you know, in the way that culture makes us visible to each other, you know, we don't, we don't know that anyone exists unless we see them, you know, other kinds of people who are leading different lives, whose lives have different specifics than ours. We see each other through the vehicle of culture. Otherwise, we're invisible to each other and invisible to ourselves. It was also this incredibly exciting moment where this group of lesbians in the East Village were limbing that that culture. We were becoming visible to ourselves and to our audiences. And it was an electric, amazing experience. It's interesting just to think about the extent to which your college experience prepared you for it and how the college experience kind of, you know, and set up a kind of level of confidence or skill for you to break out into that world. (laughs) That's right. I had a lot of confidence. I mean, I had a lot of confidence and it was all misplaced. You know, I, I, I thought I really knew a lot about theater and I, you know, part of my experience of of wow was being disabused of those uh, assumptions daily. And that re-education was also incredibly important uh, for me. You know, the experience of making theater with people who didn't know the rules of the theater. I mean, you know, so much of the dynamic of well comes out of that experience of seeing what happens on a stage when you put somebody on a stage who doesn't understand the rules. Right. And I found, I think I, what I, what I saw was that that is because in fact, there are certain aspects of those rules that are almost like hardwired into us. When those rules are broken, we actually feel the experience of being in live theater more than anything else. It's true for a lot of people. I, I bet you have a story like this. Like the moment we can't forget in the theater is some moment where something went wrong. Right. You know, when it goes wrong, then we understand what that imaginative compact is, that that high wire act that happens between what goes on stage and the audience. And uh, I realized, and this is true in 101 Humiliating Stories, 2.5 Minute Ride, and well in different ways, that if you could cross back and forth across that line between being a performer, speaking to an audience, and what happens when that falls apart and you're a person in a room with other people, that there was an electricity and that, uh, you know, it was a central dynamic of my work for a long time. And by the way, I completely understand what you're talking about. And I just want to say that it raises really interesting questions to me about being an arts educator, because mm. to what extent are you educating artists and designers, mm-hmm. you know, within a context and within the way certain things are done, and also to be responsive to that electric moment that you're talking about, be responsive to all the changes yeah. in the rule breaking that inevitably and necessarily needs to happen when they go out into the world and they begin to do their work. Right. I mean, I think artists ultimately have to educate themselves. And what art educators do is to put a bunch of things in front of them that they will make of whatever they will. I have the experience now of students who are really wanting to be told, is this right? Is this wrong? You know, who are really following instructions. And I, I really yearn for them to be 
more skeptical of everything that I say. I mean, I wouldn't enjoy that particularly, but I'm, but I, I'm just like, they have so much humility, which theoretically should be a good thing. But there's a way I'm like, you, you need to feel like you know more than me and then you'll be disabused of it, you know, but where's your <laughs> naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. but, but every artist has to educate themselves ultimately. Yeah. It's an interesting transition to my next question, really, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working on a, uh, on a project now, on a book about the creative process. And what interests me is how we know things from making them. That the whole, the whole popular notion of holding the great vision beforehand uh, um, and then working to manifest that is not how most artists and designers talk about their work. No. And writers are particularly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. eloquent about this. You know, uh, I was looking at, after Philip Roth died, I was looking at some interviews that he gave. He talked about going into complete uncertainty and talked about every sentence was a revelation, right? He, right. he only knew it as he made it, as he wrote it. Right. I mean, Joan Didion talks about this in a really interesting way. It's a way of knowing herself, which I think, you know, I'd have no reason to write if I could access my thoughts in any other way, right? So I'm really exploring this whole notion of what make to know is and wonder, does that have resonance for you? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the work that you do. uh, uh, I mean, another quote, which you might know is, you know, Juno Diaz says that when you finish a novel, you should be a different person than you were when you started. And I think that's, I think that's right. Right. I mean, I think the first thing that you said, if, if, if you could conceive of the whole thing before you wrote it, it wouldn't be necessary to write it. Akira Kurosawa, I heard one time, uh, was doing an interview and someone said, can you tell us what your films are about? And he said, if I could say, if I could tell you, I wouldn't make movies. I would write it on a piece of paper and hold it above my head. Um, mm-hmm. you know, a work of art is a, is a map of something that, that can't be said any other way that can't be expressed. I mean, I, I don't really like the word said, I don't think, I don't think art actually says things, <laughs> but it expresses things and it reflects things. So yes, I agree with you totally. Between 1998 and 2006, Lisa wrote two critically acclaimed plays, Well and 2.5 Mile Ride, featuring Lisa as the central figure. In Well, her solo show with people in it, Lisa explores in a deeply personal way the complexity of the relationship between mothers and daughters, illness and wellness. In 2.5 Mile Ride, Lisa presides over a slideshow without actual slides, but with square frames of colored light, interweaving tales from a trip she took with her Holocaust survivor father to Auschwitz, her family's annual excursion to an Ohio amusement park, and her brother's marriage to his internet bride. Juxtaposing light and dark with her trademark wit, Lisa weaves strands of time, of horror and humor, all to a deeply moving effect. I'm interested in the entry point into that place of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you used the material from your own life as, as a way into your work. Mm-hmm. But I guess then the question is, when you went into that, was that really a point of entry into uncertainty that then you began to learn and discover 
aspects and, and, and notions and nuances of that experience that you would have never known until you went through the process of making it. Yeah, absolutely. At some point, it occurred to me that I became a like I, I, I learned the craft of writing, or at least I took on that quest so that I could write about my father. I mean, I think two things. One was I felt, I, you know, I, th I think the quest is inside 2.5 Minute Ride. You know, if I, if now I were to describe what happens in that piece in theatrical terms, I would say this character of me starts to tell this story unconsciously believing that somehow by telling these stories, she will reconstitute the lost world of her father. And as she is telling the story, that quest starts to reveal itself to be elusive mm -hmm. and then impossible. Interesting. Right. <laughs> and, and then where, you know, where this character gets at the end is not only to the place of knowing that, but also understanding that her father's grief is not the same as her grief. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly why I started making the piece, but in some ways I think it probably is. And the other thing is, you know, um, a kind of a mercenary artistic quest, which is to say that I knew that there was, I think this is also true of, you know, Alison Bechtel with her father's story, with her, with her father's story. I knew this was incredibly powerful material that in a way was my birthright to make something of. Mm -hmm. And then there were sort of proto 2.5 minute ride shows where I just stood on stage and told my father's stories. And what I felt doing it pretty quickly in the aftermath was this is a cheat. There's something really unsavory about what I'm doing here. You know, I'm really catching a ride on someone else's loss, someone else's experience. Was it because of the extreme horror of the Holocaust as was that part of what was operating? No, no. I think it was because I could repeat my father's stories and get people to make those little noises people make and maybe get them to cry. But who was I to tell those stories? What uh -huh. was I doing? There wasn't anything uh -huh. real happening. It, and it made me extremely uncomfortable. And that consciousness is still in 2.5 Minute Ride, right? Yeah. Well, I don't tell his stories. I don't tell his stories at all. In his voice, you know, he and his voice tells one of his stories. Right. I meant in reference to the Holocaust itself, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I also, I was also making a show about my father's, you know, ultimate point of view, which was, or orientation, which was to always look for his own complicity just as a human being. And you can't do that if you're just, you know, telling stories of tragedy that essentially are pre-digested, you know, that are in the kind of inside, firmly inside the kind of codified understanding of the Holocaust now in which we know what happened and we know who was good and we know who was bad and we know for a fact that we're on the side of the, the good guys. And, you know, in the scale of our horror uh, has been pre-calibrated for us. It's not to say that it's not truly horrible, but I think as I started to work on it, what became clear to me was that people going through it didn't have that bird's eye view. I mean, we feel it now, right? We feel it now where we're like, there are children being shipped to camps, to concentration camps, essentially, in our country right now on the Texas border. Thousands and thousands of children. It's happening right now. As history looks back, what is the scale of that going to be? We actually, we know that it's bad. We don't know how bad. Is it so bad that you and I shouldn't be talking right now? We should be throwing our bodies in front of those trucks? Right. We're in that moment right now. Right. So I was 
looking, you know, in terms of the what I wanted the stories to be about, but also the theatrical experience of those stories, which is something is unfolding in this moment. It's not a retelling of something that's done. What is unfolding in this moment? So I wanted to try to take apart this kind of sealed way that we talk about the Holocaust and find a way to get inside of it so that we could look at that experience in the way that would have some relationship to what's happening to us now, although it was long before we were, you know, in the moment we are now here. It resonates completely with what I'm trying to explore, that Mm -hmm. that moment, what happens in that moment of the performance or what happens in your experience of doing the writing exposes and opens and raises issues that without the making could never have come. And therefore, the work itself is only realized. We only can know it in the making Mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. I've also tried to look at adaptation and uh, ask the question, is adaptation any less going into a place of uncertainty than anything else? And with you, there's a really interesting comparison, right? You have using your own experience and autobiographic material, which you just described in a way as an adaptation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, you adapted it and, and and found it through your creative work, right? Yeah. And then there's the graphic novel, right? right? And I'm just wondering about your own sense of going into places of uncertainty, even as you're standing on the scaffolding of these, either your autobiographical material or the, or the novel or whatever, right. and if that's a comparison that makes sense to you. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, a very apt comparison. And I have I have also thought of them as related to each other. I think that starting out as somebody who could tell a funny story and, ma- you know, making work out of a bunch of funny stories put together and then little by little becoming interested in how do I take that kind of work and make something that has more of shape and more resonance and thematic content. And then there was something else. You know, there were times when I was telling stories where I could feel this kind of lift And then other times where it felt more like I was dragging something up a hill. And in retrospect, I see that what I was after for a number of years (laughs) was dramatic action. And one of the keys to understanding that came when I read the diary of Anne Frank and was really taken aback by it because she doesn't know what's going to happen to her. Mm. And I wasn't really expecting that. That's why it's so gripping. She doesn't know what's coming. And... I sort of realized in that moment that there's a difference between living through something and telling the story about something. And that, you know, as Thornton Wilder says, stories look back. They stand here and they tell you what happened. But on the stage, it's always now. You know, the characters are eternally poised on the, what does he say, sort of on the knife edge of the cutting moment. That's not what he says. It's something like that. (laughs) It's way better. It's Thornton Wilder. It's the best. And so... That with my show about my dad and then looking at Fun Home, that was the question. Who is in the present moment? Who is moving forward in time into the, into the unknown? I had never written a musical before when I worked on Fun Home. I was interested in uh, lyric writing and had a sense that that was something that I might be able to do. Although I wouldn't have been able to do it without the incredible tutelage of Janine Tesori, great master of the American musical theater and also extraordinary collaborator. But what I did know was that I understood something about dramatizing thinking and remembering. And I understood something about the structure of Allison's book, the, the essayistic structure. And I knew that I had successfully dramatized somebody, me, 
parsing through a profoundly emotionally connected intellectual process or an intellectual process with emotional stakes. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Right, right. And I knew that that was what needed, that that was what needed to be dramatized in Fun Home. Doing it, even with my experience of 2.5 Minute Ride and Well, uh, which does it in a different way, was the most difficult work that I've ever done. And I think Janine would say it was the most difficult thing she's ever done as well. It was incredibly difficult. You know, there are no scenes, there are no characters, there's no narrative in the sense that we think of a forward moving narrative in Fun Home. It feels like there is if you read the book, but there is not, I can tell you there is not. So all of those things had to be created. Right. And you found in the making of it, again, a, a world that that story revealed and a way of understanding and engaging with it that could not have possibly been imagined even in Allison's book. No, and it really couldn't entirely be written either because essentially what, you know, the way it operates is that, and, you know, I've had people tell me so many times, and we certainly, while we were working on it, said, take out Adele Dallison, take out Adele Dallison. And I was like, you know, I didn't necessarily say this out loud, although maybe sometimes I did. Please, I beg you, show me. Go ahead. Be my guest. You know, it's I, I I was just like, there's nothing here. If you take out that, if you take out that questioning voice, there's really nothing there. Because she, what she's doing is going back and looking at these moments that happened in her childhood that were nothing happens in those moments, except as she remembers them, she's filling in the fact that her father was gay. But his gayness didn't make anything happen in those moments. Right. You know, a guy came to work on the house. Right. They went to New York City. They saw some place. You know, nothing happened. Even he got arrested when she was a kid and then he got let go. I mean, nothing, nothing happened. So, see, I'm getting defensive again. I'm getting all worked up again, even talking about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, I'll say that that temporal line that represented by those three figures is uh, an essential part of the structure of the whole. Yeah. And the dynamic yeah. that exists among the three is critical. Right. But Adult Allison is not a narrator. And we knew that. I always knew that. She got referred to as the narrator. I was like, she's not the narrator. But even I started, you know, gave her a certain amount of exposition in the beginning. All of that got taken away. It got taken away, taken away. And the thing is that I would write things for her and we would all agree that seems good. And then we would put it in Beth Malone's mouth and it would be terrible. The dynamic of the piece, you couldn't tell what it was without actually seeing it in space. You had to be able to see her watching it. That was the tension. It had to be physically realized in order to understand what we were making more than anything else I've ever worked on. The dramaturgy is made out of total theater more than anything else I've ever worked on. The set design is dramaturgical and, you know, the lights were dramaturgical and the, the music certainly and the staging is profoundly dramaturgical. And that was a real, that was a great pleasure. You know, I love that about about the theater, you know, it's this couple thousand year old form. And there are all these people that have these weird arcane skills. You know, the writers know things that nobody else in the room knows about. And the lighting designers know things that nobody else in the room knows. You know, these, these old, old crafts, you know, that everybody knows. And then you're, you know, you're in a rehearsal or, you know, you're in previews and, and you, it's happened with an audience. And then all of these people with these weird old arcane you know, skills sit there and we just all sit there together and we just break our brains thinking together about what is going to 
coalesce an audience's imagination and get them on this ride of something happening in this theatrical moment. And that is that is just a glorious uh, experience. Yeah, I know it. And I actually compare it to my experience of running an art and design college, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I'm involved in that kind of collaboration, honestly. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's the yeah. same kind of high and the same kind of sense of wonder that I got as a theater director. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's the two are very, very closely related and draw very similar kinds of things yeah. out of me. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most memorable moments during the Brett Kavanaugh congressional hearings did not actually happen on the Senate floor. Rather, it happened in an elevator where two women, Anna Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher, bravely confronted the Republican senator from Arizona, Jeff Flake. They implored him to consider his responsibility to women who had been sexually assaulted, as they had. The power of the exchange was crystallized when Gallagher called out to Flake, his eyes downcast, Look at me. Look at me. A forceful and all-too-human exhortation to be seen, heard, believed. Hours later, Flake called for an FBI investigation into Kavanaugh. It was a startling testament to the impact of one individual's story. I explored that moment with Lisa in a way that connected to her own reflections about the immediacy of theatrical experience. You know, I had an interesting moment the other morning. I heard this interview with Anna Maria Archila, who Mm -hmm. was one of the women who was in the elevator with Mm -hmm. Jeff Flake, right? And um, she was reflecting on uh, Maria Gallagher and... And the power of Maria Gallagher's look at me, mm-hmm. right? And how important a moment that was. And, and what, what Archila did was she reflected on this quote from uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates from Between the World and Me, where she said, we can't understand a great un- injustice like slavery, any great injustice, by thinking of the masses. We have to think of the one individual human being. Mm-hmm. So I had that moment, and then I went back to reading your wonderful essay on theater and ethics, and you were talking about the singular consciousness of the storyteller in one sense as the frame versus the theater and the democracy of consciousness that exists there, too. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was it was really interesting that in in one moment we were saying, look, at, there's the power of the one human being story that gets told, right? And how we focus on that, and Coates' quote that way, right? And then the power of the theater that actually democratizes that and opens it up and shows the limitations of the individual. And I just, just want, I thought it was a really, intre- not a contradictory one, but a really interesting relationship of, of, of those two elements. And I wondered if you had a, any reflections on that at all. Yeah, I, I, I think that's an interesting pairing. I, I actually don't think it's a contradiction at all. I think, no, you know, if, you, yeah. if, if the play, if the play is... Uh, you know, takes place in the Senate and the protagonist is Jeff Flake, then Maria Gallagher is, you know, she's uh, she's another character on the stage. And yeah, yeah. she had, I mean, I think the, the point of what I was saying was, you know, the problem is when there's a play about the Senate and that character is, you know, 
the only way we see her is in relation to a worldview that's held by Jeff Flake, right? So she's the person who holds the door, or she's, a, you know, a protester that we see in the distance who's making his life difficult, or, you know, she's um, the maid, more likely, um, in his house, who not coincidentally also is the person doing the set changes, which pay attention, you'll see it happen a lot. Um, mm -hmm. When in fact, that person who's also on the stage, whether or not we, he we hear their entire story, the point is that every character, if you turn the lens, they would be the protagonist of their own story. Everybody is the protagonist of their own story. Right. So, so I, I think actually that uh, those, those two ideas are, are consonant, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly, you know, that moment. That, that's exactly the moment that I'm talking about where, you know, the paradigm that those Republican senators are living in is a paradigm that is at odds with the experience of many, many people. And what she did in that moment was to make him grapple with the fact that that paradigm does not work for her, does not reflect her experience. You know, she, she basically inserted her reality and her paradigm into his. That's why it was electric. And in a theatrical sense, that's correct. If you really give all of your characters their own make, you know, picture that they're all the protagonists of their own play, you will get the kind of dramatic electricity that happened in that elevator. You spoke really eloquently about how you discovered the thing you wanted to make and you wanted to create. And I, I'd like to go more on the Joan Didion side of that and how you became more self-aware, how you grow to know yourself through your work as a performer and a writer. I don't know. I mean, I guess, I mean, the first part of my career was learning a craft, sort of on my feet, sort of like a vaudevillian, I like to say. And then the second part was making these shows about my parents and, you know, 2.5 Minute Ride and Well. And I think that there were two drivers for that. One was that I felt my childhood, my sense of self, my sense of what my family was and what mattered in the world was shaped by my sense that my parents had both intersected with major events of the 20th century and they had particular relationships to those and something of, of value to share. Also, they were hilarious characters, both of them. So, like, I, I felt driven, you know, to, to take those experiences, those points of view that I had been given and make something out of them. And there has been other work, too. There was uh, In the Wake and um, the Verizon play and different things. But I will say one other thing about those, about those two pieces that something that occurred to me sort of recently, which was that I loved my parents so profoundly. And I also felt, I mean, they were, you know, they were boundaried people, but I, th I think I also, that if I didn't sort of individuate from them, I would be subsumed by that love. And really mm -hmm. all of my plays are about, ultimately about individuation. You know, in the, you know, Marsha Norman said, everybody has their stuff. Mm. The story that I have told over and over and over again is about individuation. So I think in those plays, the other thing, the sort of unconscious thing, which in retrospect I can see was that I was simultaneously using those plays to individuate while I was basically making a container that would hold my love for my parents and make it visible to them. I think that's the other thing mm. that I was doing mm. for myself. Lovely. 
Yeah. So after that, you know, then it becomes about, okay, now that there's not that sort of personal drive that comes out of childhood and I have developed my craft to this point, what is going to be, what is the work that's going to be meaningful now? And Fun Home, you know, was, I mean, it took seven years to write. Then we've, you know, had continued to be involved in it as it went on tour and as it, I mean, as the public and then Broadway and then was on tour and then in London. You responded to my question so beautifully about individuation and a container of your love for your parents. How did Fun Home continue the, just the wrestling with some self-knowledge, a a sense of... I don't don't know that it was about self-knowledge. It was in the sense that Allison and Janine and I are all the same age. And, you know, in order to write that character of Allison going through that thing, you know, that journey of trying to understand her father and her relationship to her father. I think, you know, there are pieces of the musical Fun Home, which definitely, you know, an incredible amount of Alison Bechtel. It's her story. But there's a lot of me and a lot of Janine in it, too. And, you know, the sort of setup for that character is that she enters it thinking she's going to have a, a kind of a experience of craft and intellect. You know, in order to make a thing like that, you have to go inside of it in a way that's just going to take a piece of you. So as we're trying to write a character who's doing that, it, it was happening to me and Janine. It was happening to us. And I remember I was trying to write the end and I kept writing it and I would... I would, you know, email it to Janine and then we'd get on the phone and she would say, it's not it, it's not it, it's not it. And, and I kept writing this one afternoon and I was just sobbing while I was writing. I was sobbing while I was writing. And Madeline, my partner, was like, you have to stop, you have to stop. And I was like, no, no, I have to keep going. But I was just sobbing and sobbing while I was writing. And I realized, and this was, I don't know, four, three or four years before my father died, that what I was doing was sitting there imagining my father's death. I was imagining his death as I was trying to write Allison actually Mm. the moment where she actually feels the fact that her father has killed himself. And you can't get to that level of writing without going into a state of profound identification with it. Mm. I guess that's the answer to your question. To wrap up, I just want to offer a very personal response to your work through a couple of images, and they're both interestingly from 2.5 Minute Ride, and maybe just get your reflections on that. Um, The first is the use of the blank rectangles of light in that play, which to me keeps on having resonance the more I read your work and see your work and understand it. It's this wonderful way for me to access really so much of what I learned from you. First of all, what we bring to the blank space as an audience and how you engage with us there, that permeability of the audience that you talk about. The second thing is just the frames, the rectangles, the multiple ways and contexts of seeing and of interaction Mm -hmm. that I find so interesting. And the third is the light itself, Mm -hmm. right? And all that comes to us through the creative engagement. And the more I experience your work and I, I, I relate to it, that's what stays with me. Oh, that's lovely. I worked for a long time. I worked for, for five years on that show. And, you know, early on, I had these juxtapositions. I knew that there was something interesting in juxtaposing these stories of being at the amusement park and being at the concentration camp, being in Europe. But there was something, there was something, there was something missing. There was also this problem, this incredible problem of exposition, as there was similarly, actually, in Fun Home, which was that in order to understand the stories, you needed to all this crazy exposition 
you needed to know that my dad was a German Jew who left in 1937. You needed to know that he had been in the army. You needed to know that he loved to go to amusement parks. You needed to know that I grew up in the Midwest, that my family went to Cedar Point every year, all these things. There's no dramatic uh, reveal for those things. There's nothing about learning them that does anything. But in right. order to get to the work itself, right. you needed to have that information. So it was a it was actually a just a problem. It was just an expositional problem to figure out how to just get that into people's heads so that we could go ahead and do the show. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, in an earlier version of the show in La Jolla, I just said to people, I just have to tell you these things first. Like I just did it like that. So I felt like here was a show that was, you could feel that there was something there, but it was so earthbound because the other thing that it was missing was metaphor. And my partner at the time, um, Peg Healy, I was, you know, just trying, I had taken it apart and I was trying, trying, trying to figure out like what, there's some, there's some device, there's some something. And I thought about records. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking about. I was just, I was getting nowhere, but I kept trying to think what there's some device that will help me do this. And I don't know if you remember the movie, I heard the mermaid singing. Uh, mm -hmm. So they talk about a painting in that movie. Is that Patricia yes. Rose yeah. Rosenblum? Yeah. What I remember is they, they keep talking about a, a painting, a painting. And, and I remember thinking, how are they going to represent this painting? You know, they've really talked it up. I don't know how they're going to represent it. <laughs> and then, I don't know if you remember, when you finally see the painting, it's a frame and there's a glowing light coming out of the frame. Right, right, So right. Peg said to me, remember that image and I heard the mermaid singing. She was like, what is something like that? Like pictures, but there's no, nothing in the pictures. And I was like, well, uh, yeah, uh, okay, that's great. And I sat <laughs> on the, and I never, certainly at that point, never wrote like this. Everything was just like pulling teeth. But I, I, I was like, I got it. I got it. And I sat, like, I think I had my, like, I pictured myself by my coat on sitting at the edge of my seat. And within 20 minutes, that entire play had poured into that those slides had poured into that metaphor. The second one is the story of Lohmann oh, yeah. and your dad's reflection on Lohmann who refused to wear the Hitler youth uniform. And he was the only one. And your father would re reflect that he was glad he was born a Jew so he wouldn't didn't have to come to make that choice as to whether or not he would have conformed right. in that kind of way. And here was this one, one guy who didn't, this one child who didn't. That's just a story and an image that stays mm -hmm. with me really, really powerfully. It, first of all, the courage to see that, the courage mm -hmm. of your father to see that. You know, you talk about the reflection on one's own limitations. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's an incredible moment mm -hmm. of struggle and, and of understanding that. And just also this implied celebration of difference, that somebody was able to stand out with that kind of strength and be the person mm -hmm. that he was. Mm -hmm. And again, how that has, all, all those levels have, I think, amazing resonance for mm -hmm. your work as well. Yeah. And I, I'm grateful to you for telling that story. It's amazingly powerful. That story and that point of view was given to me. My mother had her own versions of that with her work in the, you know, in our neighborhood growing up. And, and I, I felt like I, that, 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 you know, what you're describing, that's not, you know, that's not my story. But I think in a way that that part of my work and, and what led up to it was me working to be worthy and to make something worthy of sharing that story, to make a container for it that would be worthy. That's lovely. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you very much. This was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. 
for a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, consultant Bruce Mason, and post-production services provided by Freedom Podcasting. Thanks for listening.